0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Mark Nepo. Mark is a poet and philosopher who has taught in the fields of poetry and spirituality for over 35 years. He is a New York Times number one best-selling author and a cancer survivor. Mark devotes his writing and teaching to the journey of inner transformation and the life of relationship. With Sounds True, Mark has created several audio programs, including an eight-CD series called Staying Awake, The Ordinary Art, and an audio program called Holding Nothing Back, Essentials for an Authentic Life. Mark has also created a new nine-month interactive video learning course called A Pilgrimage of the Heart, Discovering Your Authentic Voice and Inner Courage, and that series launches on March 19th. Mark will also be a featured presenter at Sounds annual Wake Up Festival, August 14th to the 18th. And he'll be offering a two-day pre-festival workshop, Journey With No End, on writing and spiritual growth. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Mark and I spoke about how to relate to our own pain and that of others in a way that is truly helpful. We also talked about sincerity as a specific type of intelligence, the role of pilgrimage in our lives, and the spiritual path of the artist. Here's my conversation with Mark Nepo. Mark, I've found through your writing and speaking and through your presence a heart communication that I really value, and I wanted to begin our conversation actually by going right there and talking about the heart. There's a metaphor that you use in your work where you talk about the heart as if it has a Gill or gills, like fish, mm. and I was wondering if we could start right there,
1: sure, sure, well, thank you. you know, I think that you know my experience has been that uh, regardless of what we think we're after or or doing, that we're really kind of you know moving through life so that we can bump into things that w- will will touch our heart, that will open our heart, that will remove everything in the way. And often those things come from great love and great suffering. Um, and so, so to go to, yeah, this is, you know, I find teachers... Uh, everywhere and and often the simplest creatures are the greatest teachers and this is the case with a simple fish you know i we all learned this in school early that um you know fish are air breathing creatures, but they live in water, and we learn that they have this amazing thing called a gill, and you know it's it's so kind of We learn it so early, but this is miraculous. This is absolutely astonishing and miraculous. So a fish moves through the water, and the water moves through the gill, and the gill somehow extracts the oxygen, because we know water is hydrogen and oxygen, and discharges the rest, discharges the hydrogen, lets it stream behind it. So this is an amazing teacher because th- this is also why fish need to keep moving through water or they will die because they have to have the water go through their gills in order to breathe. So as we talk about this, I'm not talking about motion or stillness the way we normally do. So the fish are these amazing teachers They are examples of the endless search that has no destination. They're not moving through the water because they're going somewhere. They don't have any agendas or appointments, not that we know of, but they need to keep engaging their element or they will die. So the metaphor, the teaching metaphor here that is just amazing is that for us, the heart is our gill and we need to move through the water of experience every day or inwardly we, we will die and we need to somehow through first-hand experience learn how to extract what is essential and discharge the rest because when we don't discharge the rest, when we cling and hold on to what is not essential, it starts to clog up the gill of the heart, and we can no longer breathe from what is essential. So this is just amazing.
0: (laughs) Well, let's talk about both parts of this process a little more, this extracting what's essential. Let's start there. How do we do that?
1: I think there are um, many ways, and and with, with with most things that matter, we should start uh, by offering that they are both universal and very personal. So while all of us need to learn how to do this, we can talk about it. But but anyone who is listening, if this makes sense we need to find where that lives in our own personal life. So the way that we extract what is essential is by staying present and not hiding, by trusting over being skeptical. That doesn't mean we can't be cautious or prudent. By not rehearsing our way through life, By remembering the quiet courage to meet each moment, not only as if it had never happened before, because it has never happened before. And, you know, we all, you know, I'm talking about this. Do I do this all the time? Oh, no. I mean, I try. I I try because being human, uh, you know, we, we, we don't do it constantly. Uh, you know, my heart gets clogged and then I have to clear it out and then I have to kind of work on extracting it. So I I think that, you know, the chief way to extract what is essential is having the quiet courage to meet whatever comes our way with an open heart. And And if we don't, which is very understandable because, you know, fear and pain make us temporarily shut down, that's like a natural, almost biological reflex. But the commitment to open our hearts once they've been closed, to open our minds once they've shut down—you know—to re—just just just like our eyes, you know, blink how many times a day. So when the heart blinks, to to commit to opening it again.
0: And this art of discharging what's not needed
1: well that's you know that's the the art and let's say every generation has had to deal with this that that's and and i think in the buddhist tradition teaches us so well about about putting things down putting down what has already passed not clinging to our dreams of what we'd like life to be. It doesn't mean we can't have goals and we don't work toward things. But goals and dreaming, I've learned, are the kindling for being alive. It's not so, much so important what the dream is as that we, we take the dreams like kindling and throw them into the fire of our aliveness. And trust that. So I think, you know, putting putting or discharging what what isn't essential really hinges on uh, not pretending, not hiding, not, you know, I think we all have this, t- because we have these amazing minds, you know, we tend to go over things, whether they're good things or difficult things, once they've happened, you know, it's fine, I think, to recall, remember, this is how we gain knowledge, to even revel and feel the glow of a beautiful feeling or love or a person. And then at a certain point, which is different for everybody and different in every circumstance, I have found that it crosses the line and now I'm living in... past or the future and i'm no longer here and those dreams and those memories are not fueling my aliveness they're distracting me from being alive so this is a constant unending part of discharging you know there's another kind of different kind of aspect about discharging and this is just also amazing is you know i was working on a novel and and um i wound up and uh, needing to research the kind of the beginnings of massage and the history of of touch of healing touch and and it really led to this amazing kind of uh, early understanding that that is still a part of the medical healing professions though most people i don 't think address it so early on, the first people to really um, to really heal through touch were the priest shamans the early medicine men and women the so and and there's there there are some early stories that um, kind of all go like this that there's a a healer who recognizes that someone young has the touch and so they begin to apprentice them to become a healer and when they learn enough the basic kind of story goes, then moved by good heart and good intention, they go out too soon to heal someone who is ill. Because the two qualities, the twin kind of uh, tasks of healing from the beginning of time, one is to remove the toxins from the patient to remove the illness, and this was done at first by by touch, by rubbing leaves and oils and chanting, you know. But the second is just as important, and that is if you have the touch and you remove the toxins, what do you do with it? How do you not keep it so that you don't just get sick? And how do you not be contagious and just transfer those toxins to someone else? So this, so this is another level of discharging um, that's really important, not only in, uh, I mean, let's go to healing first. So today, you know, the soul of the healer, whatever that might be, well, we have a lot more machines in the way of our touching that help heal. But the heart of the healer still has to tend. What do you do with what comes? from those you treat and care for? Where do we put it so that it doesn't make us sick or others sick? And, you know, this is also very important in terms of compassion, the role of compassion and healing uh, with among loved ones and friends. You know, how do I listen to you with my heart? And if I really do, I'm suffering too because because I love you. But how does that become the oxygen we breathe and not the thing that makes us both sick? And I don't don't know the answer to that. Yeah,
0: I'd be curious to know in your own experience, Mark, because you are such an incredible listener, and so I'm sure that all kinds of people come to you and... Spill their troubles of all kinds. I mean, I know I feel it whenever I'm around you. I'm ready to confess, God knows what, and I'm sure other people do too. <laughs> oh, so I'm you. I'm curious. Yeah. I'm curious to know how do you work with that? How do you let that flow through you, the pain of other well,
1: people? Well, I think, in, you know, one of the the and this this you know is really spoken about very well in the twelve step programs, you know, and the whole thing that you know Melody Beattie brought to light. Twenty years ago or so about the, about the dangers of codependence, I think a lot of it, the, you know, out of good heart, you know, if someone and then you know, let me just talk whether it's Susan, my partner, or my father, who at ninety three has just had a a stroke and just recovered from pneumonia, you know, I can't take that away from him. So you know, my first impulse is I want to solve it. I want to. And I, you know, I don't want him to suffer, and and all that does is make me sick and not able to really help. I mean, certainly there are things I can do. When I was with him, I wound up feeding him, uh, which was a very tender, unexpected thing. Um, but I can't I can't take his ninety three years and the age of his organs away from him. So that that leaves me with what what does it leave us all with it leaves us is being with it leaves us with keeping company it leaves us with more presence than doing and then then my heart can open in its strength and be a warmth that he can he can be in you know, I, I think this is a very, um, uh, and I think this is at the heart, you know, compassion does mean literally suffering with or being with, being one with. And the, the paradox is that, you know, while the suffering surely can, can be so painful that when we accompany each other, we don't take the pain away, but yet at the same time, we're, we're deeper and larger and, and enlightened, lighted within for sharing it. So I think, you know, I, I struggle, I, I always struggle too, with um, a reflex to problem solve and care for and protect And then part of my deciding what's essential and what's to be discharged is, well, what can I really do, like, you know, feed food (laughs) or, you know, help my father from the wheelchair to his bed, that's doing, but what, what else, you know, what can I, do I need to put down, you know, because he's at the end of his life and whether that's a month or two years or three years, um, how do I really keep my heart open to to the honor of that journey? And that's the journey with everybody. With everybody is, um, I think often, and again, these are not faults. They're understandable constrictions of the heart for being human. You know, at the first kind of, being jarred by crisis or difficulty. It's very normal to say, wow, I don't know if I can deal with this, or whoa, uh, you know, I need to turn away. This is too painful. But again, it's, it's, it's do we return? Do we then relax our heart open and say, you know, this, is, this will be what it will be, and we'll all be in it together. So now, okay, I can turn back to it and and they ask the person who's suffering what is what is this? You know, at first it was hard for me to hear this, but I'm here. I'm here. Now I'm here. What is what is this like for you? I think another thing, Tammy, that's I am very humbled and have learned over the years is that and believe in deeply is that everyone who is suffering in some way has a wisdom. And we are so often afraid of our own mortality or of being with those who suffer that we forget to ask them what they see and hear from the place that they've been brought to. This is especially true of elders. You know, it's as if people, each of us has a lifetime and we climb a mountain and so okay, you know, again, my father is 93. I guess stay with this example. Well, at 93, why, you know, I want to know what is what does he see from that far up the mountain that I don't. What does it feel like to have been on this earth that long? Now, you know, he doesn't talk about things the way I do. <laughs> um, you know, so I so that opens up a whole nother level of compassion is well how do I how do I find a language that he's comfortable with? I may not get those answers or those questions the way I would like to ask them. But you know, we had a moment, a very deep moment and he was nodding off and I was holding his hand and then he had an oxygen mask on and he he stirred and and I just kinda of squeezed his hand and I said, Hey, you know what? And he kinda of looked at me and I said, I'm glad you're my father And he just got this big, you know, beam under the mask and he said, Yeah, I'm glad you're my son And oh, I was just so thankful for that and then he dozed off. And then a few minutes later he kinda of stirred again and you know, so one of the what's his language? Well and I said, Well um what's What kind of father was your father? So then he just started talking about that. Um, So, yeah, I think think so much has to do with opening our heart and meeting people where they are in their language.
0: Mark, I want to just share this example to you and hear how you might relate to it, which is I was with somebody and I would say the gills of her heart were quite stuffed and blocked because of a loss that she had gone through and she was quite bitter about it. And this is someone I really care about. And what I found was that there was nothing I could say or do. I tried to meet her in this place of stuckness, but the truth is I felt sad and frustrated at the end. And I guess what I'm curious is how do you relate to somebody when you can't help them? Your presence doesn't seem to help. Nothing seems to help them create flow through their being in the way that you're talking about with the metaphor of the Yeah, I
1: think, you know, I think that and, and that's very true and I've also had kind of similar experiences and I think this speaks to to the wisdom in the in the buddhist notion of of seeing things as they are and then still having our heart open but being willing to discover what that means so you know the truth is you know uh and again without blaming you know this friend of yours might be in so much pain that they, you know, it's like drowning underwater, and they just can't hear you or me above the surface. And so, you know, if you can't, if you know, if you can't do anything like physically, like if someone can't breathe, you t- t- try to help them, or they're bleeding, you call nine one one. But in these psychic and spiritual and emotional drownings, you know, I think all we can do is just hold the space on and as long as we can without without us going under and again the sense of return so you know whether we check back in with those people but it's very or or you know hold them in our heart and say prayers and whatever things we can leave around whether they pick them up or not without imposing but i think you know it's that all that thing where you know we will do what we do until we stop and we may not stop we we may not come up and it's very sad and frustrating but this is i think again how how the challenge for all of us is how to be clear and compassionate very often in our society we're extreme you know we we we're taught either that you know, to have our heart open means well, we're just going to stay there forever, no matter what, even if it's frustrating, even if that person becomes hurtful in their pain. And the other extreme is well, okay, they're they're not, they can't hear me. I'm going to, sh- you know, I'm I'm not investing anymore. I'm going to shut my heart down, and like uh, that's all I can do. And then we get hard and we walk away. Wow, you know. I guess I'm 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 learning or I want to continue to learn. It's it's not either either or it's, it's how do we how do we keep the heart open and see what is true and say, Wow, I'm you know, even if we don't say anything to that person but not to shut down in order to walk away but how to and i think i think we're talking about the the mysterious realms in a very real grounded way of okay how do we how do we practice being a bodhisattva how do we you know you know with what other with whatever little parts each of us has been blessed to awaken and accept and be in life. How do we hold that open to all the parts in other people that are not there? And see, in that way, I think like every person is part bodhisattva. (laughs) Every person has some gift and some trouble and some mature, deep, awakened part of soul and some other part that's blind and this is how we kind of like pollinate each other in the human spring. We all need each other, you know, because the part that's awakened in me may not be in you and the same thing, where you might be wise and and, and full of amazing soul insight. I might be just blind.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. I like so many things you're saying, Mark, I have to be honest. I want to circle back to one point you made that I've been reflecting on as I'm listening to you, which is this way of communicating about spiritual insights in a way where you're talking very personally, and yet you're talking about universal themes. And, you know, you mentioned this, that there's this way of communicating that's both personal and universal, and I'd love to hear you say more about that, and the reason is sometimes I hear people talk and it's very prescriptive and they're sort of like telling me how the world is and I think to myself look who are you to tell me how the world is I don't want to become like you know I know you too well to listen to how you're telling me to live my life because I know your life is filled with all kinds of mixtures of things yet there's a way when you talk that I feel the universality but it's very personal and it doesn't feel quote-unquote prescriptive so I wonder if you could talk about that.
1: And that's very important to me as a teacher and a writer. You know, I feel, and and, and this speaks to to, we live in an age that has a cult of expertise, and I don't um, subscribe to that. You know, I feel that the teachers who are real teachers work to open a space where everybody in the room takes turns being the teacher because we're really called to compare notes at being alive and therefore as you've just said no one no one can tell anybody how to live and this is why at this point in my life I really have no interest in debate or argument or persuasion I feel like we need everybody's view to touch on the whole and the oneness and the wonder and the usefulness of all the resources that are in the mystery. And I love, you know, in, in Native, you may have run across this, that in Native American elder circles, they always meet in a circle so that everyone has a view of the center. And I th- I feel like it's not just so everyone can see the center, it's so that everyone can contribute their view of the center and together they approximate the oneness of things. So, you know, it's very important to me that um, that I offer and that the circles that I'm blessed to be a part of open, open up a space where yeah, no, one size doesn't Fit all, and I think you know there's a there's a there's a thing, and this goes way back to when I was a graduate student in English, um, and there was um, a Canadian uh, a scholar named Northrop Frye, and this guy was amazing because um, he really was kind of like a mystic who just you know kind of turned out to be a scholar, so. One of the things that he wrote about, and he defined the difference, which has stayed with me all these years, between significance and meaning. So, significance is only personal. You know, significance is, you know, um, that you know the first woman I fell in love with had auburn hair. But meaning is when I touch under that to the place where everyone who's ever known first love can feel not just that auburn hair when I speak of it but whatever that was for them so this goes again to that the difference between significance and meaning is whether we stay in our mind or we dive into our heart. And so this is why, you know, I think another kind of thing that, that really speaks to this or that that keeps us from from comparing notes is when we offer conclusions over evidence. You know, often when people are prescriptive, they're stopping just short of sharing what life is really like for them. So you know, if I got burned as a little boy on a stove, and now I develop a whole philosophy about avoiding <laughs> avoiding hot surfaces and um, and then I tell you, you know, don't go near hot surfaces. Well, that's a conclusion rather than sharing the full experience of how I was burned when I was little and And it basically you see when we share evidence of our experience we get closer to others and we have more respect that others can draw their own conclusions and and this is why i think one of the greatest and most honest things we can ever say to each other is i don't know because then we begin a friendship with the unknown
0: you're listening to insights at the edge produced by sounds true if you're interested in listening to previous episodes of insights at the edge they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program for more information please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access and now back to insights at the edge One of the things I've been curious about is how an artist, a writer, a poet, someone like you communicates spiritual truths in a way that might be different from somebody who says, you know, I'm quote-unquote a spiritual teacher, and I'm offering these teachings from the tradition. And I'm curious what you have to say about that, the path of the artist, if you will, as a complete, legitimate path for spiritual journeying.
1: Well, yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I think at heart, all of those, at heart, every endeavor if and vocation, if taken deep enough, is the, the, the life of a spiritual pilgrim or, you know, the, the word saint originally came from the Sanskrit sant, which meant truth seeker. So every path goes at its very deepest is that of a truth seeker and a spiritual pilgrim. So this is why someone like Einstein, though he was a physicist, at the depth and the center, he, he, he was a poet and a, and a teacher. So they're just different forms, different mediums, different... Uh, instruments, but if we hold them with with enough love and honesty and truth, it's all the path of a teacher. So now, in 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 the the, the form that I've been born into, you know, I feel like you know my uh, job is to see and listen and to share the aliveness that I receive as untouched as I can, and I do that through metaphor and poetry and story, and um, even whatever kind of quote spiritual writing I do is all uh, aimed at Putting things between us as cleanly as possible. You know this. I learned this. This is so helpful in this and what we're talking about. And this is the difference between Western, uh, a Western approach to art, and an Eastern approach to art. And I learned this through. I've been slowly, um, you know, learning uh, uh, traditional Japanese woodblock carving. And my teacher is just this wonderful, amazing artist who had studied in Japan and her name is Mary Broadbeck and she's just amazing but so uh, one of the first things that she taught us those of us who were journeying with her was we looked at all these different examples throughout history but the western sensibility is one that if I'm going to draw your face let's say I will look at you very carefully and try to not leave anything out I will try to get every Wrinkle and and surface and glimpse of your and I want try to not miss a thing, and then that approximation is is you. But the Eastern sensibility is, I'm going to look at you and be as present as I can be until I see the four or five lines. That will bring not only your face, but your being into view. And that's going to be the portrait. So that's, I recognize that immediately because that's what I've always tried to do as a poet. That's what I've always, you know, there's another wonderful kind of moment of teaching for me about this, and that was... Um, I've always kind of learned a lot from other art forms. Um, John Singer Sargent, the you know famous painter from the 1800s, and I was in a museum in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and there's a, a painting of his called the Venetian Interior, and it's a, a mostly a dark painting of a woman sitting in a room in Venice. And she's kind of like her looking down. She kind of looks tired, even sad. And up in the corner, there's a little window. And through the window is coming this intense little beam of light that lands on her hand, which is on her knee. So while the whole painting is this room, it insists the focus of the painting is the light that's outside in the street that's beyond the frame of the painting. It becomes a window to a world. And when I saw that, I was in my 20s, I said, that's, that's what I want to do. With every poem and every story and every, with everything I write, I want it to be a window so that you are brought through the window into the reality of life that's beyond the page where we all live.
0: I love that, Mark. And yet I want to reframe my question in a slightly different way because I want to make sure that you and I are really communicating here, which is, I think one of the things that I'm noticing in you, which is what I want to highlight, is how Somebody could spend years and years practicing as a Tibetan Buddhist or a Qigong practitioner or a centering prayer practitioner. There could be all of these different forms of spiritual practice and that the path of the artist, the path of the poet has its own forms and doorways and takes people really to what we could call the depth of these universal realizations. I and that's kind in. of what yeah, I hear yeah. in you that to me is so illustrative of something that I think is really important, this path well, of the artist.
1: Yeah, thank you. Okay, I, and I, I see what you're, um, what you're asking here. And actually, this speaks to very much what, you know, we've been working on uh, you know, I've been working on the the pre-festival uh, intensive for next August, which is going to be on writing and spiritual growth. And I've called those two days uh, label, called it "Journey with No End," and that is exactly what that workshop is about. What I understand now, what you were just asking, and it's this: it's that the life of an expression. Awakens our soul. And so, just, just as we have to inhale and exhale hundreds of times a day, we have to perceive, which includes thinking and feeling and intuiting, we have to perceive and express constantly. This is how the soul stays awake. And the life of the artist, whatever form, is one of the ways we've been given to, to spiritually breathe, to practice this. So so just as there are so many beautiful meditation practices, and just as the goal of, of that breathing, of that inhaling and exhaling, it doesn't make us great meditators, it, bring, it makes us more clear vessels of life. Well, in the same way, writing, expressing, perceiving and expressing, and I'll stay with writing, but it's really any art form, it doesn't make us great artists. It brings us closer to awakening our soul. And, and I have to say that I was awakened to the difference through my cancer journey. You know, on the other side of my cancer journey, after almost dying and still being blessed to be here, I realized that I was more interested in the expressive journey of healing than in the production of great art. So that a great work of art, it's totally shifted my definition of that. A great work of art is one in which the person who has rest it is transformed for having encountered it. Not whether it's one of the greatest works to come along in this century. Does that get a little more towards...
0: Yeah, you're really pointing to the process of the artist, him or herself.
1: Yes. And, and the reward... Again, for this process, and, and this is why I love you know and, uh, the the whole notion of the Tibetan sand mandalas and Navajo sand painters did did the the dene, I should say is the their the tribal name that they prefer for themselves. Navajo was what we westerners put on them, but uh, so the sand painters would create these beautiful sand paintings and then leave and let the wind. Complete them by erasing them, and the Tibetan sand mandalas, where you know uh, these amazing monks will beautifully, over months, create these intricate, amazing, colorful uh, mandalas with different, um, you know, sections of all different colored sand, and then in a ritual, wipe it all away, wipe it all away, and that it's the it's the process that is the art that leads us to the life of the spirit and so the the words are really the trail i you know another way to say this is that uh, is which has been very profound for me is that you know like any young young um young artist or you know writer i i wanted to you know in in a very devoted way, you know, really study, become a serious poet, and maybe maybe, after a lifetime, if I was blessed, contribute maybe one or two poems, maybe write one or two quote great poems, and add to the to the lineage and the literature. well, you know, life came along, gave me cancer and other things, and I you know turned me upside down and and suddenly, I started to realize like that fish. you know, know, tying all the way back to our fish, like that fish needing to swim through experience to stay alive, suddenly I realized, oh, I don't I I really don't need to create great poems. I need to discover true poems in order to stay alive. So now everything's shifted. And now in my sixties, now it's shifted even yet again and you know what? I wanna be the poem. <laughs> more than write the poem and of course this devotion to this process is the only way we get close to that so every act of love and every act of courage and every act of quiet lifting between human beings and and every moment of that that touches down between a conversation like you and I are having that's the poem and any attempt to share it or preserve it or record it is betrayal is the artifact it point you know it was i love there's a great great story you may have heard you know of of buddha talking to his students and saying you know my teachings are only fingers pointing to the moon don't don't get hung up on my fingers look at the moon look at the moon and you know the the real value of any work of art is the invisible mysterious essence of life it points to like that moon not not itself
0: i want to be the poem i like that mark you come up with a lot of good things, and you know there was one there's there's one thing I wrote down from listening to the audio series. I was listening to staying awake last night, literally staying awake, listening to it and you talked about sincerity, and you quoted a Chinese saying, "Given sincerity, there will be enlightenment, and I wanted to make sure that you and I had a chance for you to talk about sincerity and what this means to you.
1: Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, and yes, that great, it's from the Doctrine of the Mean, which is one of the the ancient Chinese texts, that, yeah, given sincerity, there will be enlightenment. And And I know, you know, for me, I hold enlightenment not as a noun, but as a verb. That is, the light Within. Is released. The light within is manifest. The light within is made so that it comes alive between us. So, sincerity, being authentic, holding nothing back, staying awake, all of these things are part of sincerity, which allows us to manifest the light within us. And again, being human, you know, am I authentic all the time, every part of the day? No, I get tired, I get numb, I get cranky, I forget, um, you know, I break things, I, you know, I, I inadvertently hurt the people I love, but being authentic means that I own it and say I'm sorry. And then I'm responsible and responsive to what my actions have created. So sincerity, and and I also this is I love I just have found out about this um, that the word authentic goes back to the Greek mean authentes, which means the mark of our hand. The mark of our hands—that makes so much sense. I mean, I'm always, I'm always surprised and not surprised at the, the origins of words, because to be authentic, to be sincere, is a hands-on job. It's not in the head. It's not conceptual. It's—it uh, it all has to do with showing up. And you know, and I think, and and you know, from from the program, but you know, I, I think it's worth talking about for a minute, where the word sincere uh, comes from, because it's also very, very instructive. And, and in the West, uh, the word sincere goes back to the Renaissance, during that amazing time when there were so many geniuses everywhere, artistic geniuses. And so in this, you know, glut of these amazing sculptors and painters in Italy, especially, in the fifteen hundred, fourteen and fifteen hundreds, there were an, an amazing amount of stone sellers. They were like hardware stores today. They were everywhere, and there were like any, you know, vocation today. Any seller, retailer, there are honest, authentic sellers, and there are fraudulent sellers. And so, one way that fraudulent stone sellers would try to pass off damaged marble is they would get a piece of marble that had a crack in it and they would put wax in it and polish the wax and sell it as a pure piece of marble. Well, the word sincere in Latin means without wax. So very quickly, an honest, authentic stone seller was one who didn't hide the cracks or flaws in the stone. And it wasn't long after that that the metaphor and the analogy came to be that an honest person, a sincere person didn't doesn't hide the flaws in their humanity. Doesn't hide the cracks in their character or their heart not only for the integrity of relationships but you know in, in many traditions but we'll just pick in the tibetan mythology it is said that a spiritual warrior that is not a military warrior a spiritual warrior who is co- one who is committed to a life of transformation a spiritual warrior always has a crack in their heart because that's how the mysteries get in so being sincere, not hiding the cracks in our humanity or the flaws in our character or the wounds that we carry, is essential both for the integrity of relationships but because that's how everything larger than us can enter us and heal us and give us resilience. So sincerity is, is definitely I think I think being sincere is more important. Well, let's put it this way. I was going to say more important than intelligence. I think it's a different kind of intelligence.
0: Hmm. I think
1: sincerity is an emotional form of intelligence.
0: Let's say someone wants to become more sincere.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, you know, this goes back to some of the things we talked about earlier. I think, again, personally... Everybody has to find how, what that looks like in your life. But I would say that archetypally, universally, we are always challenged by things that dishearten us, that understandably move us away from the heat of being alive. So if we want to extract what is essential from life through the gill of our heart. If we want to um, become more sincere, we need to recognize the ways in which we're disheartened and develop personal practices for how to move to what hardens us, to move from what puts us asleep. Not to eliminate what puts us asleep, not to eliminate what numbs us, not to eliminate what distracts us, but how to move from what's distracting to what's essential, from what is sleep giving to what is wakeful, to what from what is numb to what is alive. So these then this involves all the things that that we've been talking about, is how to lean into life when experience and pain and suffering and loss push us away. How do we do that? And I think, you know, it takes... Not only are we charged to do this by ourselves, but we need friends. We need honest friends. So, you know... We don't do this enough in our culture. It's somehow taboo, but, you know, just what you asked me, Tammy, it's like if I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I'm struggling to be authentic and sincere, well, I need to have the courage to go to trusted loved ones and say, you know what, I'm I'm struggling here. How do I do this? Can you help me look at this? You know me. How can I... What am I not doing that I used to do, or what am I doing that i uh, that you see as not being consistent with what you love about me? you know we don't We don't really process our heart in an honest way in our culture when it's a tremendous, tremendous resource to do that
0: you know, Mark, I just wanted to end with talking a little bit about this idea of pilgrimage and our life as a pilgrimage. You mentioned at one point, this journey of the pilgrim. And several people have sent me a quote from you about the difference between being a pilgrim and being a nomad. Maybe you remember this quote that I'm talking about. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think this is, um, yeah, it's in the Book of Awakening. And to journey without being changed is to be a nomad. To change without journeying is to be a chameleon. To journey and to be transformed by the journey is to be a pilgrim. And of course, you know, we hear that, and I discover that, and I and everyone who reads that or hears that, we want to we be the last one. We don't want to be the chameleon or the nomad. But the truth is, we're all three. And we move among these things. And this is part of our incarnation on earth. And we could spend a day as a nomad or a decade. We can spend a year as a chameleon or an hour. But the important thing as we've been talking through all of this, is how do we return to what's authentic? How do we become more sincere? How do we extract what is essential? How do we return to being awake and being compassionate so that we can move through the lessons of being a nomad and a chameleon so that the underlying journey that holds us is one of being a pilgrim.
0: And I want to end on just one final note here. You have this teaching, and it's part of your teaching related to staying awake, to be present in all ways and in all directions. Can you give us a feeling for that? Be present in all ways and in all directions.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think, again, like everything else, if we're blessed we can have moments of this i don't think we can arrive at a state of being like that but th- this is this is the sense that we spend so much time sorting and counting and you know sorting good feelings from difficult feelings sorting what's right from wrong what's good from bad what's up from down but the, the, the essence, the aliveness, the mystery of life doesn't present itself that way. Just like we talked about water. It's H2O. I can't say I'd like only the hydrogen, please. It stops being water and it stops being quenching. So life comes as a whole, as a oneness. And the only way to receive it that way is by being open enough and present enough to not delineate and parse and separate, but to let... You know, the older I get, when I feel things deeply, it's usually more than one feeling at the same time. I can be happy and sad at the same time. I can be confused and clear. You know, I can be tired and awake. And I think that our charge is how to keep the heart open enough to get the lessons and the depth that those things hold at the same time and not to reflex because my mind is uncomfortable, has a discomfort. Well, wait a minute, I, how can I be tired and awake at the same time? No, no, I've got to put tired over here and awake over there and I'll try to move from being tired to awake. And we totally stop growing in exper- our experience of oneness. So, you know, all the, the, I mean, it's a a very wonderful kind of ongoing example, but the, the saints and sages of any tradition, whoever you think they might be, they have for the moment returned to this state of oneness where love isn't reserved for a person or an object. Love emanates like the sun for everything. And I think that when we're authentic enough and sincere enough The reward for that is that we can no longer contain our love. It spills like the sun on everything.
0: Beautiful. I've been talking with Mark Nepo. Mark, thank you so much.
1: Oh, it's a joy.
0: For your warm sun in the center of your heart, the poem that you are. Mark is going to be with us at our annual Wake Up Festival, August 14th to the 18th. And as he mentioned in this conversation, he'll be offering a two-day pre-festival workshop, Journey with No End, Writing and Spiritual Growth. And if you're interested in the Wake Up Festival, sponsored by Sounds True, it's www.wakeupfestival.com. Mark is offering through Sounds True a nine-month live event series. It's called A Pilgrimage of the Heart, and it begins on March 19th. Mark has also created with Sounds True a six-session audio series on eight CDs called Staying Awake, The Ordinary Art, and a two-session audio program called Holding Nothing Back, Essentials for an Authentic Life. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.